Now, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 2. Our scripture reading will be taken from Daniel chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 18 verses of the second chapter. For those of you who are visiting today, we are going through this book of Daniel, and you've joined us as we come to this particular section. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, we go straight through the books. And you follow along as I read the text for us today. It's an interesting passage of scripture. And you follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king, that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and to the study of it to follow a little later this morning. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 2. Before we begin looking at this text today, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God, for the practicality of it, for the inspiration. We pray that you would use this passage today to minister to our minds and hearts, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. I have a pastor friend who a couple of weeks ago called me here who had a woman in his church who was having problems with depression. The actual reason for her problems was because she was feeling guilty about something she'd done against her husband. But she decided to go to a doctor whose solution was put her on antidepressants. 
The actor Tom Cruise is at odds presently with the actress Brooke Shields. The reason for it is Brooke went on antidepressants and Tom criticized the fact that she now is trying to eliminate problems by drugs. In times of crisis, many people today are turning to that. Many people today are turning to doctors who are telling people if they take antidepressants, the hurt and the pain will go away. The reality of it is drugs will never eliminate problems. It will create more ultimately. And the truth of the matter is most people are told if they take more drugs, the problems will vanish. It's not true. The problems will just continue to escalate. But there is a solution that is never discussed in times of crisis, and that is, why don't you spend more time with God in prayer? It's been said that the true character of an individual will be revealed in a time of crisis. Daniel, of course, is the ultimate example of a godly character in a time of crisis. If you read the Wycliffe Biographical Dictionary of the Church, you will come across the name of a missionary whose name is Wilfred Grenfell. Wilfred Grenfell was a medical missionary in Labrador who ministered to the fishermen up and down the coast for 42 years. He did that in some very difficult weather. He traveled by dog sled, dog teams, and also by boats. One time a sickness had broken out in the Labrador region and he decided he needed to travel to help minister to the people. So he was traveling with a dog team in this terrible time of sickness over frozen water of the ocean and he got onto a ocean ice that broke free from the shoreline and he found himself stranded on an island of ice drifting out to sea. All he had was his medicine and his dogs. As he went out to sea, mercifully, he put his dogs to death one by one. That gave him some food to eat. It supplied a coat for him to wear. And then he put up a distress flag. And then he went down and laid down and went to sleep. He was rescued. After he was rescued, he was asked, how could you sleep at such a frightening time as you were living through? He said, there was nothing else I could do. I had done everything humanly possible that I knew what to do, and then I prayed. I turned the matter over to God, and I figured the rest was in his hands. So I went to sleep because I had nothing to fear. That's how Wilford Grenfell coped with a life-death pressure, not by a bottle, not by pills, but through prayer. How do you cope with crisis times? What do you do when you find yourself in some threatening situation? When you find yourself at a low moment in time, do you run to a doctor? Talk to a psychologist? Reach for a bottle? Put in your mouth some pills? Do you pick up a phone and call somebody so you can just talk over your whole life's matters? Or do you spend some time alone with God in prayer? That issue faced Daniel and his three friends. It wasn't just an emotional setback. This was a life or death crisis in their lives. And when Daniel and his three friends found themselves in that crisis, their answer was, you pray. Now this situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in in chapter 2 is as intense as it gets. It's life-threatening. Literally, they're going to die if they don't come up with a solution to this problem. It's not their fault. They didn't have anything to do with this. This is Nebuchadnezzar who's basically gone out of his mind. The whole thing is very satanic and it is humanly impossible. Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me the dream I've had and give me an interpretation. When you look at a crisis, this is as low as it can get. This is as bad as it can get. And the thing that we find Daniel doing 
is not whining or complaining, but praying. If there's a lesson for us to glean from these verses before us today, it is this. In crisis times of life, when God's people find themselves threatened by circumstances that are beyond their control, God's faithful people can pray and they can trust God for his sovereign help. Now this is a remarkable story, and I want to take you through it. It is comprised of ten parts, and we can begin each of these parts with a word that begins with the letter D for alliterative purposes. The first part is in verse 1, it's the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Notice what is said, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and took away his sleep. I want you to notice carefully that the noun dream is dreams plural in verse 1. But when you look down to verse 3, it's singular. The king said to them, I had a dream in my spirit. The noun there in verse 3 is singular. So this is the importance of this. As I understand it, Nebuchadnezzar had one troubling dream and he had it many times. He had one dream, but this dream kept coming up to him over and over and over again. Which tells us something interesting, ladies and gentlemen, about this. You can own the world. You could be living in a big, secure palace. You could have your own personal bodyguards. You could have all of the money in the world and servants that will do anything you want them to do at any time you want them to do it. You can have all the power dominating the whole world and not have enough peace to go to sleep at night. Because the ability to have that comes from a relationship with the Lord. Now, these dreams apparently went on for a couple of years. He had multiple dreams, one big dream, and he kept having this reoccur to him. And ultimately, Daniel will interpret one dream, which means this must have been the same dream that he kept having over and over again. And it will turn out that this dream is actually a revelation from God. God is revealing through this dream revelatory data to Daniel. Now, dreams that we have today are not revelations from God. If you and I have dreams, it's typically due to what we eat. As one writer said, it's not inspiration, it's usually indigestion. Or we have dreams based on what we've been thinking about throughout the day. Or we have dreams based upon what we've been watching or reading. These are things that control dreams in our world today, but they're not revelatory data that comes from God. God today speaks through his word. I had an odd dream this past week, for example. This was a dream that there was a leak in our waterbed and part of my body was lying underwater. We don't even own a waterbed. <laughs> what I interpreted this to mean is I'm nuts. That's what I interpreted it to mean. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream here that was actually inspired by God. Now, there are all kinds of religions that say they have dreams. All kinds of people say, God told me, God spoke to me, God showed me this in a dream or vision. It's nonsense. The Mormons have a whole system of religion based on false dreams that Joseph Smith said he got from an angel named Moroni. And I want you to understand something, ladies and gentlemen. These are not revelatory from God, but this dream Nebuchadnezzar had is. It is a revelation from God. Now, why would God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream? Let me give you three reasons why he gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream. First of all, he wanted to reveal the future that he controls. As we'll see this dream unfold, God is going to spell out exactly what his future holds. So he's revealing to Nebuchadnezzar his future. Secondly, he wants to encourage Israel with some liberation news. As this dream is unfolded, Israel will begin to realize we're about to be set free. And thirdly, I'm convinced the reason he allows Nebuchadnezzar to have this dream is because he wants to elevate Daniel. 
He's going to use this dream to bring Daniel to a limelight position where he can use him in a great way. Dr. John Wolvard made an interesting observation about this verse when he said, Nebuchadnezzar did one thing that no believer should ever do, and that is take his problems to bed with him at night because the believer should pray and turn them over to God. And until a person is right with God, there will be trouble and there will be unhappiness. There will be problems. But when a person is going through difficulties and they know their relationship is right with the Lord, they can lie down and go fast to sleep. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The second part of the narrative is the desire of Nebuchadnezzar, verses 2 and 3. The king gave orders to call in the magicians and conjurers and sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a thinking man. He had these guys trained, for example, for three years. Then he brought them in before him and gave them a quiz. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about the future. In fact, if you look down to verse 29 of chapter 2, I want you to notice what Daniel says in verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. So Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was thinking about the future, and somehow this dream that he got was something he knew was connected to the future. And Nebuchadnezzar had an anxious desire. His desire was to understand the dream. This is an admirable quality. He wanted to know truth. Didn't matter what the truth was, he wanted to know the truth, even if it walks all over him, which in fact, there will come a time later in this book when the truth will walk all over him. Dr. Donald Campbell tells the story of two men who walked out of their plant after their shift. One was a Christian, one was not. And the non-Christian saw on the automobile of the Christian a bumper sticker that said Maranatha. And Dr. Campbell said the non-Christian said to the Christian, what does that mean, Maranatha? And the Christian said, well, it means the Lord is coming soon. The man said, I don't believe that. And the Christian said, he's not coming for you. You don't have to believe it. The interesting thing about it is that man wanted to know what the bumper sticker said, but he wasn't really interested in knowing truth. He wasn't interested in knowing the truth of eschatology or future things. Nebuchadnezzar was. He was interested in knowing what the truth was. He wanted to understand this dream. So he called the supposed wise men of his own world who could perhaps give some type of interpretation to the dream. He paid these guys big money. He supported them. They surrounded him. They were his yes men. They would come around him, and it didn't matter what he wanted. They would meet his whims. They were the most highly educated men of his day. He called the magicians. Now, the word magician is not what we think of when we think of it in English, some sleight-of-hand artist or something like that. This actually is a word that refers to a textual scribe. This was somebody who was very smart, particularly in being able to decipher literature, and particularly sacred literature. We could call this person a sacred writer, sacred scholar. That's what the magician was. Then he called the conjurer. Now, the conjurer was a person who supposedly could contact the dead and consult the dead. He called the sorcerer. The sorcerer was one who would use incantations and potions, practice witchcraft. And then he called the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were a class of people who were supposed to be the philosophers, the religious intellectuals, and the priests. He called all of these types of people together, but as one writer said, it turns out they're nothing more than miserable charlatans who are trying to give him an understanding of his dream. These were the most educated men in the Babylonian world that Nebuchadnezzar called in before him, but they knew nothing of the God of the Bible. 
There are some things, ladies and gentlemen, the brightest minds cannot answer, especially when it comes to the truth of God and his word. When we lived in Indiana, there was a brilliant man in electronics who was a non-believer who I got to know. This guy could actually, from scratch, build incredible shortwave radios. And he could understand the intricate designs of a system. He could build it from scratch, and it would work, and he could contact people all over the world. One time when I was with him, I said to him, Listen, do you think that something like you've just built here could just automatically happen by an explosion? That all of the intricate design that you've put here in this shortwave radio could just happen by chance if you blew up something? He said, absolutely not. There's a lot of work and thought, and you're carefully looking through everything you're doing and putting this together. I said to him, let me ask you another question. Do you think that this world that is filled with all this intricate design could just happen by some explosion? And it's like his brain shut down. I mean, here was a guy who could understand the technicalities of the electronic world, but he could not understand the basics when it came to the things of God. Ladies and gentlemen, there are teachers, and there are professors, and there are scholars in universities that are brilliant in their field, but they have no sense at all of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have no connection to him, therefore they cannot teach the truth. Which brings us to the third part, the desire of the Chaldeans. Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Now, it's interesting to me, because this may be when Nebuchadnezzar began to figure there's something wrong with these boys. When they begin, O king, live forever, that's just stupid nonsense. Any king who'd ever lived knows, I'm not going to live forever in my kingdom on earth. They're passing words off here to flatter him, but they're words that don't make a whole lot of sense because at best, any king is just a human and at best, every human, if the Lord tarries, is going to die. They're just saying this to try to smooth Nebuchadnezzar over. They tell him, live forever. They were confident that if the king told them the dream or told them what he had been dreaming about, that they could figure out or invent some interpretation. So these Chaldeans say, tell us the dream and we'll give you an interpretation. Which brings us to the fourth part, the decree of the king, verses 5 to 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar decided not to tell him the dream. But he commanded them, they tell him the interpretation of the dream. Now he says, you tell me what I dreamed, and you also give me the interpretation of the dream. Now there's some debate as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar could remember the dream. The truth of the matter is, most things we dream we don't remember because they happen when we're deep in our REM sleep. I mean, I typically and you typically dream things, and the next day you won't remember what you've dreamed. I personally think that Nebuchadnezzar could remember this dream. Because he wants them not only to reveal the interpretation, he says, tell me what I dream. And because he'd had this many times, this was one dream that had recurred plural times, dreams, it is a dream that obviously he knew. And so the point he's emphasizing is you need to tell me what I dreamed, and in telling me what I dreamed, I'll know that you can give me an accurate interpretation of what I dreamed. And he says, if you can't do this, here are the results. If you did not do this, they would be executed and their house, frankly, would be made into restrooms, a rubbish heap. 
I'll wipe out you and your family if you can't tell me. If you can tell me, you receive gifts, reward, and honor. Now, how would you like this as a survivor program? Now, this would be an interesting situation. Here's what's on the line. Survivor programs today compete for money and fame. But this survivor program is if you lose, you die. In a survivor program, if you lose, you go home. But Nebuchadnezzar said, here's the real survivor test. You either tell me what I dreamed and give me the interpretation of it, or I'm going to kill you all. Which brings us to the fifth part, the desperation of the Chaldeans, verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The Chaldeans are desperate. Again, they're trying to get him to tell them the dream. This, again, leads me to the conviction that they knew Nebuchadnezzar knew the dream. They're trying to get him to tell them the dream so they can conjure up some type of interpretation to it. He knew what this dream was. He wanted them to reproduce it. As one writer said, when Nebuchadnezzar said, you either tell me the dream or you're going to die and give me the interpretation of it, he said they were shaking in their sandals. There's no way they can weasel out of this because in order for them to be able to give the true interpretation, now they must tell him what he dreamed. Which brings us to the sixth part, the doubt of the king, verses 8 and 9. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, this king is a shrewd man. Even though he's surrounded by these pseudo-intellectuals, he doesn't trust anybody in this group, and rightly so. They're a bunch of con men. He knew they were buying time. He knew that if he told them the dream first, they would just invent some collective interpretation which was not true until the thing passed away and that would get them off the hook. So he stuck to his guns. He stuck to his decree. You either tell me the dream and the interpretation of it or you will be killed. Now, people have died for a whole lot of reasons, but I have to admit this is one unique death threat. You're going to die if you can't tell a person what he dreamed last night and the interpretation of the dream. That's exactly what's on the line here. Which brings us to the seventh part, the deduction of the Chaldeans. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now the Chaldeans give an accurate conclusion here. There is not a man on earth who can do what you're asking us to do. Only deity can do this. Now, actually, this is the first time that they are correct here. There was not a man on earth who could do this, but they were mistaken because there was a man on earth who could contact the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God could reveal it to him, and he could unravel it. William Graham Scroge made an interesting observation when it came to verse 10 of Daniel chapter 2. He said this one single verse absolutely proves that those who say that they can reveal things through astrology and dreams and visions and revelations are liars and imbeciles. Because notice carefully what they say. There's not a man on earth who can actually do that. These are con men. Con men who know how to con people out of money. Know how to live a life, play a charade, convince people that they can tell them the future, tell them things do things for them when in fact they can't. And ladies and gentlemen, there are a bunch of con men out there today. They're called faith healers. And they're liars.
And they'll tell you that if you come and you give, you can experience the blessings of God. And they'll heal you of the problem. They have the power to do it. Let's see some of those faith healers go down into a cancer ward and walk down through the hall and heal those people of cancer like the apostles were able to do. Let's see them visit some Alzheimer's clinic and let's see them heal these people so that once again they have minds as sharp as a tack. There's no man on earth who can do that. But these guys want money, just like the Chaldeans. This is one of the times they tell the truth. There isn't a man on earth who can do this. You see, it was all a charade. They'd been playing this religious charade game for years, and it hadn't cost them anything. They were enjoying the fruits of the power and wealth of Nebuchadnezzar until he put them on the line. He says, now it's your turn. You put up or you die. Which brings us to the eighth part, the determination of the king. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill him. Wicked leaders are goofy. I mean, they do some crazy, strange things, and this is certainly one of them. The king was angry, and he was determined, after listening to these boys, to carry out his decree, destroy all the wise men of Babylon, which would have included Daniel and his three friends. Apparently, they wanted to start with them. Now, we may recall that Daniel and his associates were selected because they were considered to be wise men, so this edict would have affected them. If all the wise men would be killed, then naturally that would include Daniel and his three friends because he was classified as one of them. Which brings us to the ninth part, the discernment of Daniel. Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about this matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now Daniel was a wise man, and he's wise in the way he approaches Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard. He's not emotional. He's not irrational. He's not running around like a nut. He's not crying and weeping. He's not talking to everybody that he meets on the street to tell them his life's problems and stories. He's calm. He's calm in the face of deadly danger, and his calm was due to his relationship with God that was clean and pure. And Daniel attacks this systematically. He approaches this deliberately with discretion, with discernment. When he discovered that there had been this edict issued to destroy him and his friends, which would have included all of the wise men, he immediately went before the king and requested that he be given more time to do what the king asked. Now, Daniel does not request more time so that he can invent a story or read some dream manual to try to come up with some interpretation. In fact, it's interesting to me that Daniel does not ask the king to tell him the dream like the others did. In fact, notice carefully in verse 16, Daniel said, give me a little more time that I might declare the interpretation of it. You'll recall in verse 4 and 7 that the Chaldeans first said, well, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation to it. Daniel says, no, I just need a little more time so that I can give you the interpretation. Now I see here a real sovereign moving of the hand of God. Because I want us to keep in our thinking here that Nebuchadnezzar was angry with those false phonies because they were bargaining for time. Look at what verse 8 says. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Daniel asked the same thing. I need a little more time. And Nebuchadnezzar grants it. 
Who's determining that? Whose sovereign hand is at work? On the one hand, he's going to execute the wise men. On the other hand, when Daniel asks for a little more time, he grants it. God's hand is in this. Which brings us to the tenth part, the decision of Daniel, verse 17. That Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel decided to go to his home and tell his three friends. I want you to notice carefully their Hebrew names are used here, not their Babylonian names. And Daniel said, here's what we need to do, boys. We need to pray. Now these are young men in their late teens, maybe 20. 19, 20-year-old guys. And what they see is the need to pray. These are four young men of prayer. You know, I love seeing young people come to prayer meetings. There's a lot on the line today. What are you going to do with your 13 and 15-year-olds to entertain them, to make them have a happy time, a happy hour? What about instilling in them the need to pray? You know where Daniel and these three learned this? In their homes in Jerusalem. That's where they learned the importance of praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where they learned the importance of prayer. And it is these four who take upon themselves the responsibility of prayer. And Daniel, in a life and death crisis, said, I know where we can get strength here. I know who can help us here. I know where answers can be found here. It can be found as we go to prayer. So he says to his three buddies basically this, Let's unite together as four young men and let's pray. What's interesting to me is what he tells them to pray for in verse 18. In order that they might request compassion from God. Daniel says we need to ask God for compassion, not information. In all reality, what they really need is information about the dream. Daniel needs to know what the dream is, and then he needs to be able to give an interpretation of the dream. That's what's going to get them out of the dilemma. So what he really needs is information. But yet, he asks God for compassion and mercy. Why? Why is he asking God for compassion and mercy? Because, ladies and gentlemen, Israel had rebelled against God. There's no reason why God shouldn't wipe out the entire nation. There's no reason why Nebuchadnezzar shouldn't go on a rampage and wipe out the wise men and everybody connected to God because they'd so rebelled against God. What Israel needed was the compassion of God. And Daniel says, let's appeal to the compassion of God and let's ask God to intervene to help us. And what I find very interesting is, and we'll see it a little later as we go through the actual prayer, but in verse 18 He says, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. That phrase, God of heaven, literally God of the heavens. God of heavens in Hebrew is a phrase that's used for God when they're in exile, when Israel's in captivity. It's used in Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is a title that would seem to say, we acknowledge you, God, as being above all power, including those dominating us right now. And so we're going to appeal to the God of heavens, the one who controls the whole universe and all things in it, to have compassion on us. But ladies and gentlemen, do you see what Daniel and his friends did in crisis times? They prayed. What did they do when they were surrounded by this satanic attack? They prayed. What did they do when in Babylon, away from godly influence, away from godly places, away from godly people, they prayed? 
You may be 13, 15, 18, 20. You may be 35. You may be 40. You may be 50. You may be going through difficult times right now in your own life. And the thing you want to do is pray, not take a pill. It's the effectual prayer of righteous people that can move God to get you out from under the darkness of the hour. There are times when godly people need to get together for emergency prayer meetings. And this was one of those times. And one of the keys to Daniel becoming such a powerful man is that he was a man of prayer. And may I remind us all, these are four young men, captives, slaves in a foreign world. I mean, there's nobody around who knows what they're going to do. They're under the threat of death. They pray, and ultimately, they will save the life of themselves and of others. We'll see that next time. These four pray, and they comfort a godless, ruthless king. These four pray, and a king ends up glorifying God and renouncing the worthlessness of idols. They pray, and the nation Israel ultimately is put back on a course of deliverance, all because four teenage men prayed. In part of the prayer that Daniel blesses God with, a little later in this chapter, in verse 23, he says to you, O God of my fathers. Daniel learned the importance of prayer from his family. Daniel learned from his fathers that in key crisis times, the key to survival is prayer. You may find yourself in a crisis hour right now. Maybe there's something going on in your world physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, legally. I want you to remember what people did in past generations. They didn't run to a doctor to get some antidepressant medicine. Little children are being put on this stuff today. It's like they're becoming drug addicted. That's the key to surviving life. Give them a drug that'll take away the pain. There is no drug that'll take away the pain. And remember, in past generations, our family members didn't go to a doctor to get some pill to try to remove the pain. They prayed. You remember what those people did who went through difficult times in the Depression. Your ancestors who knew the Lord and walked with God, they prayed. Remember when your family members were at a time when they needed things and they needed things to be supplied for them. And we're not talking about just extra things. We're talking about the basic necessities. They prayed. That's how they coped with crisis times. That's how Daniel coped as well. The reason that he had a calm was because he was right with God and he prayed. Perhaps you haven't been sleeping well lately. Perhaps... You've got something that's really playing havoc with your mind and heart. If you want a secure future, no matter what's going on in your world today, you stay right with God and you pray. May we pray. If you're here today and you've not trusted Jesus Christ, listen. You can have a wonderful, bright future and you can have a fulfilled life by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now, right where you sit. You pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I thank you that Jesus Christ died for all my sins. And right now, I place all of my faith in him to be my Savior. Our Father, we live in a world that is almost as bizarre as the Babylonian world was.
there are all kinds of threats and intimidations that come up against us and it's as if people run all kinds of different directions except to the one who can give the real solution to the problem and that is you. I pray for our flock and for myself that we would be people who would be first moved to run to you in times of difficulty. We are grateful for the example of Daniel and his three friends who faced a life-death crisis. And may we follow their example in the crises of our life. For anything that you've accomplished here today, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.